Some passages are easier to preach than others. You're working your way through a book. We're in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28 this morning. A sermon, There is Power in the Blood. When is the last time you heard a sermon on blood? Uh, but today's your day. So you can check it off your list of uh, things you've heard sermons on. We're in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Hear then the word of God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled uh, both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God made for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, the law, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests entered the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We have gathered this morning to hear from you. I pray that in uh, what is said this morning, that your voice would be heard, that we would see Jesus, that you would help us to put our faith and our trust in him wholly and solely, completely. Father, would you speak? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is power, there is power. There is wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Right? It's a, blood is a strange topic for 21st century people to be talking about. And yet we as Christians are still singing about it. Right? We sing about the wonder-working power that's in the blood or the, the wonder that I should have an interest, you know, a, a part in the blood. It's a biblical 
topic that we see over and over again. We see it running through this entire passage. If someone were unfamiliar with the Bible and with some of these things, and they were to walk in the door on a morning like this, when we're going to close, singing about the blood, uh, they would find the whole thing very strange. You know, just try to imagine if they'd never read the Bible, if they didn't have any sense of the scriptural teaching on these things, uh, what they would think about it. Why are these people singing about the blood of a man who died 2,000 years ago? What does it all mean? Well, I'm going to try to, this morning, talk about what it all means. And it starts with uh, two fundamental biblical truths, uh, because this theme runs through all of Scripture, the need for blood. And these, founded on these two biblical truths, and the first one is that mankind is in an all-out rebellion against their creator. Scripture says that he made us for himself. That, that, that mankind were made in his image to know him and to love him and to serve him, right? And to be in harmony with who he is, his character. And, and so his law, his moral ways, the way he has made us to walk with him. But as we know, you don't have to look very far down the road to see that the entire human race, according to the Scripture, is in an all-out rebellion against their Creator. The second fact, second biblical fact, we see it in verse 27, where it says, And just as it is appointed for man and woman, for people to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And after that, every human being will stand before God in judgment. The entire human race is in rebellion against their creator, and all people, men and women, are destined to die once, and after that, they're going to stand before their creator to give an account. Ben Franklin is very famous for saying that there is nothing certain in life except for death and taxes. But I think it's probably more accurate to say there's nothing certain in life except for death and judgment, at least biblically speaking. We are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. God created the world with a moral fabric. He created it in, to be consonant, to be in harmony with his character and his, his moral person, his righteousness, who he is. He has made the world and desires it to be, in that sense, obedient to, in harmony with his character, but mankind has thrown off the yoke. They've rejected God. They've rejected his law. He, they've rejected his moral commandments. They have said, we don't like the way you did it. We have our own ideas about what it should be like. And so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And all we like sheep have gone astray, each to their own way, each to the way of Rebellion. They have become almost drunk with rebellion. They, they, you know, from one thing to the next thing, which is worse than the next thing, which is worse than the next thing. When you see the slide coming, the ways in which the rebellion will take shape seems new every day. You know, the scripture, in terms of capturing this, I don't think there's any one passage in scripture that captures this as, as clearly and as powerfully as Romans chapter 1. Verses 21 to 25, it says, although they knew God. And we believe that every human being is created in His image. And at some level, we know. We know. 
And although they knew God, the human race, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the mortal God who made them in his own image. And therefore God has given them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies against among themselves. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they are worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The human race is in an all-out rebellion, rejecting their God, not honoring him and giving thanks to him, not living according to his design. And so, my friends, what we believe about God's judgment is not just incredibly relevant. It is literally the most decisive issue in any human being's life. What we know, what we believe, what is true about God's judgment is the most decisive issue because every human being will stand before their creator and answer for their rebellion. Romans 1.18, Romans 1 goes on and says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Wrath is another topic we don't talk much about or hear much about. But these two topics are related, the blood and the wrath. Nothing is certain except for death and judgment. Romans 3.19 says, every mouth will be stopped. There will be no excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And so every mouth will be stopped. There will be no excuse. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. The whole world will be held accountable. Sometimes we think things are out of control or we think things are... You know, that, 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 that there is, you know, um, I guess a sense in which, you know, we can't have things go the way that we want. The world is taking a shape and a direction that is contrary to what we know to be the truth. But one thing that we know, and as we walk this road in faithfulness, is that the whole world will be accountable. That the day is coming. That these things will be dealt with by the only one who can. And what the scripture tells us is that cosmic treason, this cosmic rebellion, this cosmic treason against the creator, the scripture tells us it carries a death sentence. There's only one sentence. The scripture says that the wages of sin, that which sin earns, that which sin deserves, the wages of sin is death, an eternal death. It's what the the scripture calls hell. Cosmic treason. And so Hebrews chapter 10, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the entire human race, one day, will be held accountable. And so the question becomes, how can rebels, if we know our own rebellion and anyone who knows their own heart in all the different ways that we have been part of that rebellion, how can rebels be reconciled to their creator? How can can we be be made right and, and forgiven for our rebellion? What does that look like? 
the passage this morning tells us. Verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is why rebels who have made peace with God sing about the blood. Because without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so second, we want to talk about this morning that fact. Without the shedding, there's no forgiveness. You know, when we talk about the shedding of blood, it's an interesting uh, term. The idea of, of, of pouring out one's blood, shedding blood. When we talk about this language in the scripture, we're talking about uh, what the theologians would call substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And substitutionary means that somebody else did it. Took our place. It means, substitutionary atonement means that in God's justice, it allows for an innocent person to take the place of a guilty person. Right? It allows for a substitution. It allows for someone else to take the guilty person's debt upon themselves and to pay it in their place. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, many of us have. Right, C.S. Lewis tries to capture this in, his, in the first book of the series, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund, one of the Pevensey children, has committed treason and aligned himself with the White Witch and betrayed his family in Aslan. And it says that in, in, in the course of time, Aslan comes forth, and it says that when he comes to the stone table, that he invokes a hidden law from the, from the very foundation of the world, the dawn of time. And he invokes this hidden law, which is that an innocent being, if he will offer his own life for the traitor, the traitor could be forgiven and set free. Right? And that captures what the scripture is teaching us. But see, the problem is this. None of us is innocent. So I might want to, knowing this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I may want to offer my own life for my children. I who I love, or my grandchildren, I would give myself willingly. But the problem is this, I'm not innocent. The problem is, I have a life debt of my own, right? The wages of sin is death, right? The, the, each rebel owes one life, and the problem is, I owe a life, and I only have one. And I can't give it for someone else. None of us could substitute for another. Every human rebel, every one of us owes a life debt. It is required by God's justice and it must be paid. And one day the whole world will be held accountable. And here's the thing, either we will pay the debt, we will pay at the judgment the debt, the life debt that we owe, or we need an innocent substitute. Because without the shedding of blood, we're told there is no forgiveness. There's no way to satisfy God's justice, His righteous justice and judgment. There's no way to be justified. And this is why we talk about the blood. Here's where the talk about blood comes in. You know, we often call it lifeblood. You know, we talk about my own lifeblood, right? Because, because our life, uh, in many ways, is in the blood. No blood, no life. Right? Our lifeblood. To lose it is to die. 
Leviticus 17.14 says, The life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. To shed blood is to take life. And so it runs through this whole passage, this whole text. In verse 15, it talks of death. 16, it mentions death. 17, it mentions death. 18, it shifts to blood. 18, blood. 19, blood. 20, blood. 21, blood. 22, blood. 25, blood. All this talk of blood is pointing to the reality of death. The taking of life. It's what it's talking about. In the biblical context, when we talk about the blood this way, we're talking about sacrificial death, the the shedding of blood, the purposeful pouring out of blood. The whole passage is showing us that the Old Testament has been teaching us, uh, preparing us, helping us to understand Jesus and what he would do. To understand how, how Jesus is fulfilling God's will in providing a way for rebels to be made righteous, to be justified, to be forgiven. In verse 18, it tells us that the covenant was inaugurated with blood. In verse 19, it tells us the blood and the scarlet and the wool and the hyssop uh, were taken and they were sprinkled on the book. They would, they would shed the blood of the sacrificial animal, the one without blemish or spot, the perfect animal, the innocent animal who would die and shed his blood. And they would take that blood and they said they would sprinkle it on the book of God's law and they would sprinkle it on God's people as a way of covering their sin. It tells us in verse 21, blood was sprinkled on the tent. That is the place of worship. And it says it was sprinkled on everything that was used in the tent, in worship. And so in verse 22, it explains, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Everything is purified by the substitutionary sacrifice, the taking of an innocent for to set the guilty free. Twenty-three to twenty-six tells us that Jesus has come, and all these things in the Old Testament, all this Old Testament language, uh, talking about the blood and the temple and the sacrifice and the priests. He says all of these things were a copy, a picture, pointing to something that was real in heaven, and that in the coming of Christ would be fulfilled. It points to Jesus. Thus, it was necessary in twenty-three for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but they were just copies. But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice, for Christ has entered not into those holy places made with hands, not a human temple, not the Old Testament temple, no temple, no church, no place on earth. These are simply copies of true things, but in heaven itself, Jesus enters into heaven itself, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Our substitute, our representative. And that's the third point there in your outline, is that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Verse 26, it says, For he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world if he was going to do it as an Old Testament priest. But as it is, he is not in the order of Aaron. We've been through all of this. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He's in a different priesthood. He's not part of that system. He is, he is his own system. And he doesn't enter into temples, but he enters into heaven on our behalf. For he 
appears once and for all. Verse 26, once and for all, here at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is substitutionary atonement. He would put away our sin by the sacrifice of himself in our place. And so 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus is the only one. We've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews. You see it in the Gospels. You see it throughout uh, the rest of Scripture. The teaching that's very clear that Jesus was without sin. He was tempted in all ways like we are, but he was without sin. He is the only one who has no life debt of his own to pay. He's the only one who could stand innocent before the justice of God. He's the only one who earned the right, in a sense, of heaven. He's the only one who fulfilled all of God's law and all of God's command. He's the only one who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And the scripture says that this innocent one, that this one willingly gave himself, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, to take our place, to pay our debt. Each of us has a choice. What the scripture tells us is each human being has a choice. You can stand before God. It's destined that we're all going to die once and that, that, that death is closer every day. And we're all destined to stand before his justice and his judgment. And the scripture tells us you can stand on that day and pay your own penalty. Or you can claim Jesus by faith to be your representative, to be your substitute, to be the one who paid your debt, who bore your sins, to set you free. To have Christ on that day is not to stand alone, not to stand in yourself. My friend, if your faith is in Jesus, and according to the scripture, in the shedding of his blood, there is forgiveness for sins. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, but where Christ has indeed given himself There is forgiveness. There is mercy. The debt would be paid. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He Himself, that is the Lord Jesus, He bore our sins in His body on the tree on the cross. That's substitutionary atonement. He, He bore our sins in His body. That is the punishment that is due to our sins. The punishment that would be due on that day when we stand before Him. That punishment for our sins He bore in His body on the cross bearing the wrath of God such that by His wounds you have been healed. Too many people misuse this in a physical sense, and it's clear that the Scripture is talking about that your wound is a wound of sin, the wound of our rebellion, the wound that is going to cause us to stand guilty before the Lord, and it is by His wounds bearing our sins in His body, God's wrath in our places, our substitute by His wounds, we have been healed. That is, we can be justified and stand before Him, forgiven. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, God has forgiven all of our trespasses, my trespasses, yours. How did he do it? How did this forgiveness come about? Well, he canceled the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The justice of God demanded a life debt. 
right? And this life debt, he says, the record of the debt that stood against us under the justice and the righteousness of God, he said he set it aside. How do you set it aside? He nailed it to the cross in the person of Christ. Jesus satisfied the justice of God for all those who will put their faith and trust in Him. He has forgiven us for those who trust Him in what He has done, trust in His blood, His death for us, forgiven all of our trespasses, canceled the record. The debt is paid. Justice is satisfied. And so Ephesians 1.7 says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. We have been, our debt has been paid through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses and our rebellion according to the riches of his grace. Through his blood. His death in my place. Forgiveness. Mercy, grace, debt paid, justice satisfied. So we sing. We sing of the blood. We sing of the love of Christ, of the one who would take our place and shed his blood, bearing our sins in his body on the cross to satisfy the justice of God. How great thou art captures it in the sentence, the lyric, another great hymn that sings of the blood. And when I think of God, his son not sparing sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. To purchase my forgiveness. Substitutionary, sacrificial atonement where God's wrath against rebels is satisfied. Not only does it take away our sin, it says that he nailed it to the cross and our sin is removed and to put away sin once and for all. And not only is sin uh, taken away, but it says there's an exchange. He not only bore my sin on the cross, there's a great exchange that takes place. He takes our sin and it says that we are imputed or given or counted with his righteousness. Our sin is nailed to the cross and his righteousness is nailed to our souls. So that when we stand before God, we're not just forgiven in the sense of a blank slate, but we actually stand as righteous as, as the Son of God himself. We stand in his righteousness, except this is how we can be adopted. And the scripture says you're not only accepted, you're not only forgiven, like get out of here, leave my courtroom, but you're adopted and taken home. Because the righteousness of Christ is nailed to our souls even as our sins were nailed to his. So when God looks at us, guilt of sin is removed, it's forgiven in such a way that it will never be held against us, never counted against us, ever. It is removed once and for all at the end of the ages, he says. He came to remove it so that we may be accepted and adopted. And so finally, we, in the last point there, see that we will receive our blood-bought inheritance. That if, that if Christ is our substitute and our hope and our faith and our trust is in him, then the inheritance 
is ours, right? We see this in verse 15. It's where we started. Therefore, he's the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in his own blood so that those who are called and who put their faith and trust in him may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He's the mediator of a new covenant, a new way of being in relationship with God, a new way of approaching God, not to approach it on our own, not to approach it through the blood of animals or goats like the Old Testament, not to have any other method, but Jesus provides a new way where we can approach in and through him. Someone, a mediator, someone who stands in the gap, right? The mediator of a new covenant who stands in the gap. He heals the breach. He is able to bring rebels home. He's able to reconcile us to God. John Piper says a new covenant is all about how God deals with sin to make us right with Him. It's how He deals with the guilt and condemnation of sin by sending His Son to die for sinners in their place as their substitute to bear our guilt so that there could be forgiveness. And He says where this has happened, He says that He will be this new covenant mediator so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Right? We said in verse 27 that it's appointed for man to die once and after that there's the judgment. But what he is telling us is that if your faith and trust are in Christ, it's appointed for you to die once and after that is the eternal inheritance. Right? That on that day that, that the fear of death is removed the hope of an eternal life is in its place. For those who have trusted him as, his, as our mediator, our substitute, we look forward to his coming. That's why in verse 28 it says that he's going to return again, this time not to deal with sins. He came once to deal with sin, but he's coming again. And when he comes again, it won't be about sin. When he comes again, it'll be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. How can we eagerly await the ending of our own life or the ending of this world. And it is because it is then that he brings his inheritance with him. It is destined that we should die once and to inherit everything that belongs to Christ. An eternal inheritance. First Peter 1 says that an inheritance that is ours given to us in Christ. We have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says he's coming that, that he will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are waiting, eagerly waiting to save. There are two things that are certain in life. The death that draws closer every day. And the judgment that will demand a life debt for every rebel. You can pay the debt yourself. Or you can put your faith and trust in Jesus and in his shed blood to pay that debt for you. Let me close with a story and illustration. Many of you have heard about the fires that moved through Hawaii. Um, and there's a particular community, the Lahaina community, that was nestled in, the, in between these mountains so that the wind off the ocean was very powerful. 
such that the fires there were absolutely devastating because the way they came through, it stoked the fires. You know, if you blow on a fire or a bellows or whatever, and it stokes it, and the winds were coming off, and it stoked those fires so that it literally raced through the community. There were stories of people. The fires came so quickly through. The only way they could be saved is they ran and literally jumped in the ocean to get away from the flames as they raced. There, there was no time to do anything else. The story is told of a similar fire on the open plains. In a fire, they act similarly there. The winds, there's, there's no barriers. There's open plains, and the winds can whip across the plains, and, and a fire then can be devastating. The winds just push the fire. It just drives. It just runs across the plains, consuming everything in its path. And there's a farmer who's out in his yard with his tractor, and he's putting gas in the tractor, and he looks, and he sees a wall of flame coming. And there's no time for it. There's no time to run. He has to, his family's inside. So even in that moment, in that moment, he grabs a can of gas. Even as he's calling for his family to come outside and screaming, there's a fire. He pours the gasoline around his front yard in a big circle. And he steps out of it just as his family comes out. And he throws a match into the circle. And it just goes up. You know how gas goes. It's not a slow thing. It just combusts. And just as it does, the fire hits the barn, and the barn goes up, and it's coming toward the house and the yard, and he grabs his family, and they run into the middle of that charred-out circle in his front yard, and they hunker down just as the fire reaches that circle and goes around it and races off across the plain, consuming everything in its path. The only place safe to be is where the fire has already been. And what we're told is the only safe place for us to be is at the foot of the cross where the wrath of God in his justice was already poured out against sinful rebellion and sinful rebels. And that when we stand there where the fire has already fallen and we are safe on the day when the fire comes, Will you put your faith in Jesus as your mediator, as your substitute, as your savior? Will you learn to sing about the blood? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love and mercy toward us, that you did not leave us as you found us, hopeless and facing the day of your wrath, but that in your love and your mercy, you sent your only son to live the life that we could not live, And to die the death that we deserve to die. Oh, Father, would you capture our hearts with the grace and the mercy that is ours in Jesus. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning, young or old, who have never put their faith and trust in Christ as the one mediator who took their place and bore your wrath for them. You would lead us even now to your mercy that we would put our faith in Jesus. That we would cling to him now and forever is our mediator, our savior, in whose name we pray, amen.